we have come to the place in the book of Revelation where um, the wrath of God is being poured out upon uh, the earth. Uh, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ revealed Himself to John there on the Isle of Patmos. He didn't reveal Himself in a way that John would have recognized as he walked with Jesus uh, during His earthly ministry. But He revealed Himself in His resurrected glory and revealed Himself as the One who would bring forth the wrath of God upon the earth because of sin. I want us to be mindful as we look at these verses and as we study this section from Revelation 6 through 18 that this wrath that is being poured out from God upon the earth is not undue and it's not undeserved. The reason God's wrath is being poured out is because a holy God has been offended by our sin. In God's, in God's justice, He has to punish sin. If God did not punish sin, then it would be injustice and we would say that we would have a corrupt God. What we've seen in Revelation chapter 4 is we're moving into the third part of the book of Revelation. The Lord Jesus told John to write the things that you have seen, which is the vision of the resurrected Lord in Revelation chapter 1. He told John in Revelation 1.19 to write the things that are. And, and John uh, was the, the one who recorded the letters from Jesus to the seven churches. And then Jesus also said in Revelation 1.19 to write the things which must take place after this. And so we came to Revelation chapter 4 and we saw that this is where um, the Bible says, and after these things. So this is the third part. So we're really in the third part of the things that John was told to write according to the outline given in Revelation chapter 1. Then in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, we got a vision of the throne room of God. John was caught up into heaven. And there we looked at the things uh, on the throne and around the throne and before the throne. And we learned about the, the four living creatures and we learned about all the things there uh, in heaven. And we also learned that there was a scroll in the hand of God. And this scroll was sealed with seven seals. And initially, there was no one found in heaven, on earth, or under the earth who was worthy to take the scroll from the hand of God and to break its seals. And therefore, John found himself weeping, and he was weeping because he understood unless this scroll was taken from the hand of God and unless its seals were broken, then the world would remain in darkness, the world would remain under the curse of sin, and the world would remain under the control of the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, the little g God of this world. But one of the elders told John, says, Don't you cry, for there is one who is worthy. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we spent some time looking at this Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And when we turned, when John turned, he saw not a lion, he saw a lamb. And so we studied this lion-like lamb. And we looked at all the ways that Christ was both the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our propitiation, our sacrifice on our behalf for our sins. And yet he was also the lion of the tribe of Judah, roaring loudly and overcoming and breaking the curse of sin and hell um, uh, 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 while he was on the cross uh, as well. And Jesus is that lion-like lamb who took the scroll. And what we've been studying in Revelation chapter 6 is we've been studying the first portion of the tribulation. Remember, there are successive series of judgments that are coming upon the earth. We have the seal judgments, and there are seven of those. We have the trumpet judgments, um, and we have the bowl judgments. And these happen successively. They're not um, images or stories of the same uh, wrath being poured out. In other words, the first seal is not the first trumpet, is not the first bowl judgment. They are happening happening in succession. But not only are they happening in succession, they are increasing in rapidity in terms of the rate of their arrival, and they are, they are increasing in their severity and the wrath of God that's being poured out upon the earth. We looked at the first four seals that were broken when we looked at Revelation uh, chapter 6, the first four seals, and we talked about the four horsemen. And then we noticed the fifth seal we studied last week was different. In the fifth, in the first four seals, Jesus said, come, and, and the, the one on a horse came, and they were different color horses. And we've already seen coming up through the fourth seal that somewhere proximity, 40% of those who are alive upon the earth have already been killed and destroyed in some way, whether it's through famine or through this great sword where they were killing one another, or whether death and Hades came and scooped up uh, those as well. Approximately 40% of the world's population has been killed. We noticed the difference when it came to the fifth seal last week. In the fifth seal, there was no command to come. There was no horse to come. When Jesus broke the sixth seal, He saw the souls of the martyrs under the table. And we spent much time talking about that last week and talk about the difference in living in a restrained world which you and I are blessed to live in versus an unrestrained world, a world where the restrainer has been removed and evil is allowed to reign and to rule. When we come to the sixth sixth seal, this one is different together as well. And this one is altogether different than the others. Because in all the sealed judgments up until now, in every one of those judgments until now, a human force or some person was involved in carrying out the judgment. Whether it was the the one who's riding on the horse, who's come and pouring it out, but it it all involved in people or persons uh, who brought about that. We're going to see this seal is different because there are no people involved in terms of the one who is carrying and bringing forth the judgment. 
It is something entirely different altogether. Let's read it and then let's unpack Revelation 6. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. And I'll read it all to kind of get our head around this sixth seal and what it's about. We need to look at a couple other verses in the Bible and then we will come back and conclude our time of study in God's Word today here in Revelation chapter 6. Listen to the Word of God. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I looked when He broke the sixth seal. Now notice there is no come. There's no living creature saying come. No horseman coming. John says this. He doesn't see anything. John says, And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind." The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? As we look at where this particular seal judgment comes in in terms of the time frame and time period, it seems pretty clear to me that we would be more than halfway through the period of the tribulation. Now, no one knows for certain. There are no time <coughs> indicators. But looking at the things that take place in, in the seal one, the system of the Antichrist, the world system was put in place to usher in the Antichrist, and everyone was saying peace and safety. The reason they were saying peace and safety is because they had accomplished some of what Psalm 2 says. And we'll look at that in just a moment where they have cast apart uh, the fetters of, of God. And there are no boundaries. And they're doing the things that are right in their own eyes. And they have no restraints uh, whatsoever. And then um, that peace and safety was snuffed out in an instant. For we know that the Bible says in Thessalonians, for when the people are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. We haven't gotten to the introduction of the Antichrist. We haven't gotten to the things there. That's coming relatively soon. But what we can assume from looking at this and looking at the events that take place here is that we are more than halfway through the tribulation and moving in towards what's called in the Bible as the Great Tribulation. 
And so before we look at the details of this particular seal, I think we need to be reminded of some things that will help uh, help it to make sense once we look at this seal. And so I want us to go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Now, if you've been with us in our study, you know that we constantly are turning to Psalm 2 because Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And while there are fulfillments along the way that are happening, um, the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 is messianic in nature, which means that it's related to the Messiah and the end times and ultimately the period of times that we are studying. You remember in Psalm 2 that the Bible says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now now notice this. I want you to pay attention. We're going to come back to this when we get to Revelation chapter 6. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Now, when they come together to take their stand and they come together to take counsel, this stand and this counsel, look at this, is against the Lord and against His anointed. So they're not coming together to find out how they can usher in the Gospel. They're not coming together to figure out how they can live more Christ-like. They're coming together to figure out how they can live life apart from God's Word, apart from God's commands, apart from the obligations of God, and not have any guilty consciences whatsoever. I listened to a video from Tim Keller this week, and he's talking about the the influence of Christians on a society. And and what Tim Keller was was referring to was he was referring to Christians being both salt and light in the world. And we know that salt is a preservative, but it also adds flavoring and savoring uh, as well. And he gave this uh, this example of um, of um, kind of a thought exercise, if you would, that shows the influence of Christians uh, on the world. Suppose that there was an elderly lady who was carrying a bag of money, and she was feeble, and her eyes were not very clear uh, as as well. And imagine that that you're there and you have this idea that you might like to sort of do away with her and take her bag of money. Now, there's some things that you know, some things that you know. Uh, Number one is that you're stronger. You could easily take her. She's feeble. You also know that with her eyesight, she probably would not be able to recognize you or identify you. And thirdly, in this thought exercise, imagine that it were not illegal to do such a thing. Okay? So it's not against the law to do it. How many of you would do it? How many of you would knock her off, take the bag of money, and run? You're not breaking the law. I don't think there's a person here except Eli who desperately wants to buy a car who might think about it, but even Eli would not do that. Why? 
Because the law of God is written on your heart if it's not written in the land that you don't treat people that way and you don't do such things. Now, the reason that's there is because God has given us His Word. He has written His Word in our hearts. And even though it may be legal and even though we can get by with it and even though we can do it, our Christian values and our Christian influence makes this world a better place because it preserves evil instead of it preserves the world from evil rather than evil running completely rampant and taking over. There's a restrainer here as we've talked about. Okay? And also makes the world a savory place because not only would we not attack this particular lady and, and, and take the bag of money, but we would also stand up for her and against those who would. And what I've just demonstrated in a different context than Tim Keller did in that video this week is the influence and the, and the, the power that this world has because Christians are here and Christians are present and we as a world as a whole and particularly us as Christians are restrained by the restrainer. So when we see here in Psalm 2 that they want to take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, and they want to do this. They want to say, let us tear their feathers. Who is there? There is the Lord and His anointed. We want to, we want to tear their feathers apart and we want to cast away their cords from us. We want to be able to do what we want to do when we want to do it and we want to get by with it and nobody tell us it's wrong. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them. Now look at this. In His anger and terrify them in His fury. And beloved, what we are studying in Revelation chapter 6 is the initial stages. Right? There are three sets of judgments. We are still in the first set in the sixth seal. Right? And God is right speaking to them in His anger, terrifying them in His fury. <coughs> and saying, but as for me, I have set my King upon Zion, my holy hill, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of your earth as your possession. Now look at this. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. There's no competition. It just happens, right? Calamity, wrath, Terror poured out. And there's nowhere you can escape. There's nothing you can do. There's nowhere for it to be. And he issues this warning. And this warning, as we have already seen, even when the restrainer is removed, they do not heed this warning. The warning is, Therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. And yet they do not. He gives them instructions. Worship the Lord with reverence. 
Rejoice with trembling. Do homage or kiss the Son that He not become angry and you perish in His way. For look at this, for the wrath may soon be kindled. And that word kindled there is just like when you start a fire, you go find kindling and kindling easily ignites and easily lights and then spreads and causes more and more. And yet, the promise to you and I as believers in Christ, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This particular seal that we're going to study today is exactly and directly the beginning, if you will, the kindling of the wrath of God that we've read about time and time again in Psalm 2 taking place. And this time, rather than it coming through a horseman, a system, a person, right? The people turning on one another. And rather than death and Hades coming and killing and sleeping and putting people in their places, this time it comes through the terror of creation. The terror of creation. So before we get there in Revelation 6, let's be reminded of a few verses. Uh, For example, Psalm 66, 1 and 2. Psalm 66, 1 and 2. The Bible says this, and it kind of shows you, right? This is sort of the doctrine of creation, uh, if you will. The doctrine of creation. Um, in we know in the very beginning, Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But sometimes I think that we forget that not only did God create the heavens and the earth, and the word is means literally in Hebrew, bara, out of nothing became something. Everything else and everything else that's, that comes about that is created in the world is basically assembled or combined together that causes a reaction. It starts with elements. It starts with ingredients, if you will. It starts with, with particles of some sort, whether seen or unseen. And that's how things have come since God created the heavens and the earth. He created the things that are visible and the things that are invisible. All the things that scientists are continuing to discover and see today because we better have better tools and better instruments and better things along the lines are things that God all created in the very beginning. And let's be clear that God is not wrapped up within His creation. God is outside and apart from His creation. And the only reason that we know that God exists is that God has chosen to reveal Himself inside His creation. He creates it. He maintains. He sustains it. He upholds all things by the word of His power. But He is vastly, vastly beyond and not contained at all by the world. And if you look at the galaxies and all that He created in the heavens and the earth, the globe, the earth, is just a teeny, tiny little speck in this mega, mega... Uh, space, galaxy, whatever you want, whatever that's out there that's unnameable, the earth is just there and God is over all of it. In fact, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. Now look at this. The earth, footstool, footstool. 
Now, all the pieces of furniture that you have in your house, the things that you take the most care of and the things that you... is probably not the footstool. It's there. It's useful. It's beneficial. From God's perspective, the earth, yes, man has created the image and likeness of God, and yes, man is the pinnacle of creation, but in terms of the earth itself, it's the footstool of God. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? Nowhere. You can't. Why? Because everything there is, is is what God has created. Look at what He says. God says this, For my hand made all these things, and thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look to Him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. But notice what it says. My hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being. So let's just establish in the doctrine of creation, there would be absolutely nothing if God hasn't created it. Not only did God create it, but He owns all that there is to own. And therefore, as the owner of His creation, He has the right to do anything that He wants to do with anything that belongs to Him. Right? He created it and He can destroy it. And He is not wrong for creating it and He does not sin by destroying it. It belongs to Him. The greatest practical example that I remember when I was doing my doctoral research was there, um, Eli had some Lincoln logs and Eli made this wonderful log cabin and things there and it was really neat to look at. Do y'all know what Lincoln logs are? Other than, you know, if you're Leah and down, you probably have no clue what Lincoln logs are. Uh, but the rest of us who are older do. Y'all know Legos, okay? Legos. Yeah, I knew it, I knew it. All right, so these logs made this cabin. And Eli made this, made this cabin, this home, and it was sitting on a table, and Leah was marveling at Eli's creation. And while Leah was marveling at Eli's creation, Eli just went in and he just took it and just knocked it over. <gasps> Why did you do that? And Eli's words were wise words that reflect God. It's mine. I made it. And I can do anything I want to with it. Eli didn't know that he was reflecting, right, the Word of God. Now, God's intentions are a little bit purer than Eli's. Eli was trying to get after his sister and provoke her a little bit uh, there. But the truth remains. God created it, and therefore God can do whatever He wants to with it. Look at Colossians 1.13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now look at this. Notice here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, uh, 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now look at this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's more of a title. It's not saying that Jesus was born first. 
means that he is he is over it all. It has been given to him. It's a it's a title. Now look at this. For by him all things were created. All things. All things where? All things in the heavens and all things where? On earth. All the things that are visible were created by him. And all things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, no matter what it is, the world and the world system, all that's there, all that's there, all things have been created through Him and created for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the Creator and Maintainer and Sustainer of all things. Remember when we studied Revelation chapter 4? Making our way back to Revelation chapter 6? When they saw the living uh, creatures, the elders bow down. And we studied this in Revelation 4. The living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever. And notice what it says. The 24 elders representing the church will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they're going to crash, <coughs> cast their crowns before the throne. And look at what they're saying. At that moment, look at what they're saying. And what they're worshiping for in Revelation chapter 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because He is Creator. You see that? Because He is Creator. The fact that God is Creator is not just a passing thought, not just something that God did in the past, but He is actively involved in His creation. You created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. If it were not the will of God, they would not have been uh, created and they would not exist. Everything that is created is created because it's the will of God and everything that exists exists because it's the will of God. Because of your will, they existed and they were created. So we take all of that and we bring that with us now to Revelation chapter 6 because critics of the Bible, when they see the, 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 the cosmic terror that comes in this particular seal, they begin to um, criticize and critique and say it's impossible for these things to happen and they <coughs> accuse God of sin for doing all these things. And what I want you to see and what I want you to know is God is the Creator, Maintainer, and Sustainer of all things. And all things will continue to exist as long as it's in His will for them to do so. And they will be used for His purposes any way that He sees fit. So if God wants to do anything as we're going to read about in Revelation chapter 6 with His creation... I don't think it would be hard for him to do. 
right? God stretched out the, the globe. God is the one who created everything. The earth is His footstool. It is, if it wasn't a big thing for Him to speak it into existence and it come about, then it's not a big thing for God to do the things that God is about to do in Revelation chapter 6 in the sixth seal. But it's also important that you and I as believers, because one of the tendencies that people have here in, in this particular seal as well is, is they equate this as being at the end of the tribulation and they equate this as being the return of Christ because similar things and similar descriptions are going to happen when Christ Himself returns. But this is not that. This is just, if you will, a foretaste of things to come. This is just the tremor when the main event is on its way uh, eventually. So all the things that we see here in Revelation 6 are things that, that, that are not. Now, how do we know it's not the end? And how do we know it's not coming at the very end? Because remember, how many seals are there? There are seven, and we're only on the sixth. So there's a seventh seal, and you and I already know because we've read ahead that the other judgments and all come out after that before we get to uh, the end. So this is not the end. This is not the grand finale at the end of the fireworks. This is just like the first little, right? The first little firework that goes up and pops and lets you know that the show's about to happen. And yet notice even in this, notice the response of all those we read about in Psalm 2 who want to cast the fetters aside. Revelation 6.12 I looked when He broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. Uh, the word great there is the word mega. Uh, probably wouldn't even be on the Richter scale. Uh, all we know is it's a great earthquake. Notice what happens. There's devastation and destruction happens. The sun becomes black as sackcloth made of hair. Now, did the sun come black? become black because of the, what God did there? Or is there so much devastation because of the great earth and so much smoke in the sky that the sky is just filled with black and you can't even see the sun through that? We don't know. We just simply read that the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. Now, now let's be clear. July 27th, I think it is, there's going to be another blood moon where you're going to look and the moon's going to be a different color than what it is now. And there are uh, prophecy people who have written all of these books and sold them and made tons of money. Talking about the blood moons lining up and things on those lines. This is not that. Um... This here is something completely different and something unlike anything that's ever taken place upon uh, the earth. Um, the whole moon became like uh, blood. 
and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now, when you look up and you ever seen a fallen star, when you see a fallen star or a shooting star or something like that, listen, that's not really a star. That's more of a meteor right streaking across. But but that's how you see it, and that, that's how that's how you see it. This is altogether something different because the stars of the sky, listen, they just didn't shoot across in fashion that wows us. It fell to the earth. In fact, it didn't come la 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 la. When it comes, it comes with destruction. It comes quickly. As the fig tree cast its unripe frigs, figs when shaken by a great wind, when that wind comes and catches those figs, they, they fall down. Now, now I would ask you this question. Um, is, is any of this too hard for God? Is any of this too difficult for God to do? He's the one that put it all in place. He is the one who upholds it together. He's the one who says to this mountain, be removed, and it is removed. Right? You see, if you believe in God and who He is and His full power and strength, and you believe the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and you believe that He created the heavens and the earth, and you believe in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and all the things He does who upholds it by His power, and you believe all the things that we've read and, and, and hundreds of other verses there, you have no problem believing that God created the heavens and the earth, and therefore He can do what He wants to. He can direct it. He can send it. He can make it happen. He can make it do whatever it is that He wants to do and He is powerful enough to do it and He's the rightful owner and authority to be able to do it and can do whatever it is that He wants to do. So keep recycling if you want to. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, right? Keep using the, the better spray can so you don't destroy the, you know, the, the things in the sky. And I'm not saying any of those are not good. I think we ought to be good stewards of the creation that God created. But beloved, you and I are not going to destroy this creation. This creation is going to be intact, in place, and accomplishing the purposes of God according to the will of God as long as God has it doing so. And when God is through with it and God is done, God can choose to do with it whatever it is that He wants to do. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. Now look at this. Imagine what this is going to be. Now, now John's seeing this vision of these things that are happening on the earth in every mountain and every island were moved out of their places. Do you realize that critics of the Bible would say, well, there's no way that you could even tell that even happened up until the time that we sent satellites in the sky that can take pictures of the earth and see it. You think it's possible now to be able to tell? Right? We can like what do we see? Now you can look whether it's a whether it's a uh, a, a huge wave that comes in and destroys a city, whether it's flood, satellite photos show before and after pictures. In the days in which we live, it's going to be easy to tell. But even before that we could tell that, you could see that all of the mountains and islands were moved out of their places. 
you would still, would you not take God's Word and trust God's Word even if you couldn't see it? We're the first generation that would be able to see it. Generation before us, they would have never seen it. You have to believe God by faith. Now we believe Him by faith, but we have the instruments to be able to see and prove that when this happens, God's Word is true. And this will be the before picture. And this will be the after picture. And according to the before and according to the to the after, every mountain and every island. Not some, not one here, not confined to this place. Every mountain, every island were moved out of their places. How far were they moved? I don't have a clue. I do wish he'd move the beach a little bit closer, right? I do wish that we would move us a little closer to the ocean and things along those lines. And if he could bring a mountain put there too, it's about 15 minutes to the mountains, 15 minutes to the beach, I would greatly appreciate it. But as you know, we're not going to be here when this happens anyway. But the point I'm making is, is none of this is too difficult for God. And remember, this is in the beginning stages of the tribulation period. This is not the cataclysmic finale at the end. And yet, notice the devastation and the destruction that's going to come. And notice the impact on those who, right, cast off the fetters. Let, let me let me remind you this. Psalm, Psalm 2, we, we, we looked at it. And notice what it says. I want you to pay attention to this. The kings of the earth and the rulers. You see that? Now, when we come to Revelation 6, the kings of the earth and the commanders, the rulers. You see that? That's, in, that's, not, in, that's not coincidental. That's not accidental. Revelation 6 is in is directly right purposefully from God written in the order that it was written to say in Revelation 2 let I me mean, Psalm 2 cast off the fetters let's break the bonds of the Lord and let's do our own thing and do what's there and in the antichrist and with the restraint removed, they are going to accomplish some success of that and feel that they have made great, great strides in progress. But then this happens. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, everyone hid themselves in the caves. Now wait a minute. They're mocking God, right? Living their own life, doing their own things, casting off the restraints, and now they're they're hiding themselves in the caves because there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to escape. There's nowhere to even get out of from underneath the wrath of God. They hid themselves in caves. They hid themselves among the rocks and the mountains. Look at this. How bad did it get? And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him so, so what do they understand about the cause of all of these things? This isn't natural disaster. These who have cast off the restraints, they're not saying, right, right, preserve us from the natural calamities that happen. Preserve us from these natural causes of things that are going on and the shifting of the plates and all of those things. They know exactly what's going on. They know exactly what's happening because look at what it says, fall on us. They're asking them to fall on us. 
hide us from, look at this, the presence of Him who sits on the throne. And they know exactly where it's coming from because they specify clearly here and from the cause of all of these things, the wrath of the Lamb. I want you to understand that this, they're not just living in a time of terror where right natural occurrences are happening. They understand exactly and they want to escape from it. They want to hide from it. They'd rather the mountains fall on them and kill them or at least hide them from the wrath of God. And may I remind you that this is just in the first set of judgments and there's more to come. This is the first pow of the firework. This is not the finale. And they're already saying these things. They know where it came from. Listen, not only do they know where it came from, the Lord, but they know what it is and why. What do they know it is? The wrath of God. You've heard me say this before, but I'll just remind you and say again, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is going to be poured out because of sin. It's either going to be poured out on Jesus on the cross because of your sin and my sin, and He extends forgiveness to us because He bore our wrath, or it's going to be poured out here and during the tribulation period. And listen, even if, even if these mountains and rocks fall on them and kill them, Beloved, listen, that does not stop the wrath of God. That just starts the wrath of God on them for all of eternity. If in this they are crying out and calling out for it to stop, friend, imagine what hell is going to be like for those who are under the wrath of God for all of eternity. Look at this. Look at this. Here's, here's, their, here's their testimony, right? From the wrath of God, fallen as hot as from the presence of Him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of God, for the great day of their wrath has come. And look at this question. By the way, these are the kings. These are the rulers. These are the ones who took counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And look what they're saying here before the end of the first round. The sixth seal. They're saying the great day of their wrath. Who is there? Oh, there is the same one in Psalm 2 when he said, let us cast their fetters away, right? Who is there? The same one they identified in Psalm 2 that they were trying to get away from, break restraints from. They now know that they are under the wrath of the same there. This is the wrath of God, the wrath of the Trinity. And look at this question. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? I want to point out just a couple of quick things in closing. Number one, acknowledging God is not the same thing as believing God. Believing God is not the same thing as salvation in God, right? How do I know that? 
Because Satan knows that there is a God. He acknowledges the presence of God, and yet he's not saved. James tells us that the demons believe in God and they tremble and they are not saved. So just because these people are acknowledging the presence of God, they're acknowledging where this wrath has come. This, Listen, in all of this, there is no repentance. In all of this, there is no seeking forgiveness. There's no asking God to be a Savior. In all of the things that they are dealing with and going through here, even though they recognize God, even though they see the wrath of God, even though they are experiencing the wrath of God, they still refuse to turn to the only God who can save them and who can redeem them and who can deliver them from the wrath of God. I want you to understand that today there are people that you and I encounter on a regular basis and they know who God is and they'll talk to you about God all day long and they may even say that they believe that there is a God but folks there's a difference in believing there is a God and believing in God there's a difference between those things it's important for you and I uh, to know that 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 they are experiencing the wrath of God because they are guilty before God and they are experiencing the things that they have brought upon themselves because of their sin. But I also want you to know and be reminded today that, beloved, you and I deserve the same thing. And this is merely the beginning because at the point they die apart from Christ, they go into some place that is far more um, uh, worse, far worse than the things that they're experiencing on earth. And here, in a matter of a few moments, they're already right crying uncle, calling out to God, asking right to be reprieved from His presence. And folks, when they get to hell for all of eternity, there will be no reprieve from the wrath of God there either. I think when we read such a passage, what it ought to do for us is it ought to do for us two things. Number one is as a believer in Christ, remember you are not in this passage. But there's a reason that God called John there and revealed to him the things that's going to happen. The reason that he recorded this in his word for us to read and see and know the things that's going to happen because it ought to make you and I who have escaped the wrath of God, you and I who Christ bore our wrath and our sin and shame upon Him, it ought to renew in us a commitment to God. It ought to renew in us grace and mercy. It ought to renew in us appreciation for the salvation as a gift that God has given us. It ought to overwhelm us with the goodness of God and say, God, here I am, right? Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. It ought to cause us to put a blank check before God and say, you you write out the will for your life for me because just the fact that you have saved me from these things and Christ bore my wrath, I'm indebted and in gratitude and want to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, not in order to gain the these things, but because we have received them. 
It ought to challenge our it ought to challenge us in our commitment to God. It ought to challenge us in our sacrifice. It ought to challenge us to set aside the pettiness and set aside the differences and the things that happen in this world and just come before God and be thankful that we're saved and be thankful that we're part of the family of God and be thankful that we're going to miss the wrath of God that is to come. It ought to cause us to get over ourselves. And it ought to cause us to live humble lives of appreciation and gratitude and not be bothered by anything in this world. Because I'm telling you, no matter what you're going through and how difficult it is and how you're not getting your way in all of these things, listen, it's not the wrath of God because you'll never experience and therefore you and I, we need to get over it. Be thankful and be glad and say, Worthy are you, O Lord. But secondly, what it ought to do is it ought to cause us to want to go and warn everybody that's in the path of this destruction that is going to come. And in my opinion, the opinion of many theologians and scholars, sooner rather than later. Now, I'm not a date setter, but I do believe in what's called the doctrine of imminent return, that there's nothing else that has to happen or take place before Christ's return. And therefore, I believe that you and I could be living in the last generation before these events happen and take place. How dare we not open our mouths and shout it from the rooftops and warn every person that this is going to happen and this is going to come. Not fear-mongering and not scare tactics and all of those things, but simply uh, communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly telling them that they are guilty before God and they are, they are under the wrath of God even now according to Romans chapter 1 and show them how they can escape the wrath of God that is resting upon them now so that they don't experience the wrath of God when He comes in His fullness because even then they are saying who is able to stand Beloved, I believe that if we truly get this right here, just these verses today, it ought to awaken within us a zeal for lostness. It ought to awaken within us a zeal to disciple others. It ought to awaken with us a passion and a desire to make an eternal difference in any way that God would live us, would let us. It ought to take us and every person that we meet and however long we walk on the journey of life with them, be it a few minutes, a few weeks, a few months, or a few years, they ought to, we ought to encourage them in the Lord so they'll be closer in their walk with God, more mature and 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 indifferent because they have been in our presence and we walk with them than they would have been without us. Folks, that's what the church is about, and that's what the church is for. So don't simply look at this passage and say, mm, I'm glad I'm not gonna be there. I don't know why we're studying, I'm not gonna be there. 
it's because it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that God brought John in the Spirit on the Lord's day and showed him a Christian all these things that are going to take place and forever recorded it in His Word to make an eternal difference in our lives and the lives of others we share. May we not sit on the gospel and keep our mouths closed. But may we love people. May we serve people. And may we verbally share the gospel with them. That souls would be saved. Lives would be changed. And the kingdom of God advanced. Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, Lord, that You love us and that You sent Jesus to die for us. We are so thankful that the wrath of God is not going to come upon us because it was on Jesus on the cross. And we're so thankful that even as the Bible says in Revelation 3.10, that You would keep us from the hour of testing that's going to come upon those who dwell upon the earth. Father, I pray that we would know just how great You are and that we would respond to You in um, however ways that You're speaking to us today. I pray, Father, we know that worship is truly a response. We've heard Your Word. We've sung Your praise. And now we respond, not just in the few minutes we're going to sing this song, but not just in the rest of the days we reflect on this message, but may our response to this message be as responsive as every message and may it impact us uh, for the near future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.